Welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. You know, I'm not failing because, yeah, I had to get over that guilt. Like, do I type this to Kaben? <laughs> you know, am I failing as a woman in 2020? You know, that was a real thing. Do I, am I going to fail? In, I don't know who I was failing myself, whatever. But then I wrote it. I was like, I'm not guilty about this. I am so excited about today's episode, and I can't wait for you to meet our guests. They are fantastic, and the conversation only gets better. My name's Rob Elliott. I'm an associate pastor at a church called Lifehouse in Rockland, California, which is suburban Sacramento. I describe myself as an average friend, an average husband, and an average father. How I identify myself, I'm a theologically moderate, straight white guy. I graduated from Simpson University up in Redding, California, which at the time was known as Simpson College. Uh, I graduated from their uh, biblical studies program, which I believe was uh, recently shut down. I love all-you-can-eat sushi. I love exercise. And dear God, tell me a good story and I will cry my eyes out. If I could clone myself, uh, my clone would lead wilderness canoe trips in the Adirondack Mountains in the upstate New York region. Greetings, I'm Christy Kluse. I'm a clinical laboratory scientist. I work at community medical centers in Stockton, California. I'm a wifey. Uh, my husband is a professor of philosophy and ethics. I'm a mommy to a 13-month-old. And uh, thanks to a surprise pregnancy, uh, another one coming this fall. I'm a mama by adoption, so I'm passionate about ethical birth mother-centered adoptions. I'm known to, quote, not have a filter when I'm opinionating. I have a degree in biochemistry from University of the Pacific. Uh, I found research to be super dull, not my cup of tea. So when I was 30, I went back to school. I changed my career path. Um, ended up being a very good move. I'm a huge fan of Jesus, probably too critical of the church, but I'm learning that you can't have one without the other. If I could clone myself and have two occupations, I think right now in this season of life, I'd want to be a stay-at-home mom. Hi, I'm Caben Kramer. I'm a fourth-generation California farmer, farming walnuts on fertile concow land along the edge of the Feather River. I'm a husband and a father to two awesome kids. I identify as a white male, and I'm loving my 30s. Formerly, I'm educated as an engineer, though I've never actually practiced engineering as a profession. I identify as a follower of Jesus and find the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus attractive. If I could clone myself and do two things at once, my clone would probably be a cultural anthropologist. And with that, we are going to jump into the conversation. And because this is the first episode, I thought it'd be appropriate to start by asking, how do we have good conversations? So that is where we pick up with our guests. Enjoy the ride. How do we have good conversations? I'm such a black and white person that like... <laughs> <clears throat> I'm a very good clinical lab scientist. Let me put it that way. Good at my job, not good at, at things like this where, I, I don't know, are you talking about like everyone sitting around a fire or, I, I, sorry, I don't know how to interpret the question. I'm so bad at this. 
Like, let's get to the heart of the matter, right? Like, I don't want to spend all this time with fluff, as I call it. You know, like, get to the point. Like, what are we talking about? Like, let's dig in. I don't care about the weather unless it's doing something super cool. But, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, let's just, let's talk. And let's talk about the tough stuff. Like, I don't want to fluff around the edges. I use the word fluffy a lot. I just, I'm not a floof fan unless it's on my poodle. You know what I mean? Like, just, like, let's, like, I, especially in the context of, like, Christians in a group talking about things that matter. Like, let's really talk about them. Like, why are there taboo subjects? Like, why am I not allowed to talk about, like, the LGBTQ community in my small group? Or why am I not allowed to bring up, why are you, there are certain things that you're not allowed to talk about that I think Jesus would have totally talked about. Like, we're just having a conversation. I see it as get away from the felt board Jesus board and let's let's have a good conversation. I think people's real... Well, I have been known to be that one person in the small group that brings up stuff that makes people uncomfortable. So let's just... I'll just admit that. <laughs> um, I don't have a point I'm trying. I'm not trying to, like, convince people. Why does it make you uncomfortable? Why do you think this is a taboo subject or you know, just, just digging a little deeper, like getting over, getting people past the, the comfortable answers or the replies that, that you're quote supposed to say, I don't know, let's just explore it. I'm not asking you to change your mind. I'm not trying to argue, I'm not trying to convince you of that my point, you know, that you all have to agree with my point, but that's the point of a conversation, right? Is we should be able to debate this or talk about this as a group. Uh, you know, the first thing I have to say is it, uh, I know what it means to me and even to speak it makes me, makes me deeply mournful, uh, because there are a select few group of people that I would share those moments with, and we are scattered all across the continent. Um, for me, it is sitting around a campfire on a wilderness canoe trip with my dearest friends talking about the things that are not only most important to the world, but most important to us individually. There's something about that context that makes my heart come alive. I'm not able to reproduce it in many places. You know, I have a good life. I live in a good neighborhood. I have good friends in my neighborhood. But these special relationships that I have with my dearest friends... There's something sacred about them that I can't replace with anything. And I'm so glad to have it. And it breaks my heart that I can't have it more frequently. So campfire deep in the woods, uh, discussing the things that are most important to me with my dearest friends. That's my answer. Yeah, I love that because that I think has a lot of really, a lot of jumping off points for us. I think there's something about the physical space and you mentioned that there's something about that context that makes you come alive. I think for me, as I consider what makes a good conversation, I heard a good friend of mine say recently, I want the real answers, not the right answers. And I think there was something about that statement that pinged something deep inside of me that said, that is one of the gateways to a good conversation. When we can move off of the right answers and begin to bring out of what is inside of us the real answers, 
and be okay with just how short-sighted, limited, confusing, contradictory those real answers are, Mm -hmm. I find the delight of that conversation increasing point for point with the realness of the answers given to the spoken or unspoken questions in the room. I had a a woman that is kind of a ministry associate of mine who I've really encouraged to pursue her calling. Um, she went to a conference last year at a church in Redding, California. Um, the church is called The Stirring, and they put on this thing annually called Poets and Preachers. And she bootlegged me one of these messages out of one of the sessions that I don't think they intended to go wide. But one of their associate ministers said something to this effect. She sent it to me. It said, the reason that Christian art sucks so bad is we're more concerned with it being right than with it being authentic. Mm -hmm. And... You know, it's kind of the K love phenomenon. I know that there's a there's a yes, lo- there's a lot yes. of good folks there that are doing their 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 best and are prob and probably have a lot more integrity than I do. But there's still something about it that's a bit corporate that if you don't toe a certain line, you're going to be in trouble because there's a fear of being authentic. Um, and when you run into Christian art that is authentic, it is raw and it is dangerous. And I think it represents these conversations that we're talking about having right now that we long for, that we're afraid to have. Yeah, I, I think I think there is something that really longs for that kind of conversation. There's very few people that we have in our life right now that we can, that Christopher and I can have those kind of conversations with. There's like four. <laughs> and And for me, honestly, it's, it's gotten to the point almost where that becomes my definition of friend because for a long time, I really tried to lock in friends to being people who I could meet with for coffee on a regular basis. And I began to feel bad as I got into my thirties that I didn't have very many friends according to that definition, you know, especially with moving and other things that we all experience. But as I begin to reframe it through this idea of holding the space of capacity where we can get past what's right and get into what's real. Um, I find, I find a lot of friends there. Hmm. No, I agree. It's just, it takes quite a bit of work to get there. Yeah. These are all, I think when I think of the people we could have these conversations with, there's probably like six. Okay. Let's open it up a little bit more. Right. Um, there are people that we've known for a long time or have been, in relationship with for you know either our whole marriage or before our marriage and then through you know we've been married 12 years next week congrats so thanks so um you know there's a lot of ups and downs yes there is right and uh everyone has theirs but you know that the infertility was a big hump for us a big big one and uh, adoption was a big one. So, you know, those people, though, that we've known for a long time, but who also are deeply, deeply like in love with Jesus and want to want to pursue the truth. We can have those conversations with those people. I mean, I'm all for like the sisterhood, but, you know, it's not wrong to stay home with your kids, right? Like it's not wrong to work a full time job. Anyway, we could get into that. That's a whole nother podcast. But you know, I'm not failing because, you know, I had to get over that guilt. 
Like, do I type this to Kaben? <laughs> you know, am I failing as a woman in 2020 by saying I'd rather, you know, that was a real thing. Do I, am I going to fail? In, I don't know who I was failing myself, whatever. But then I wrote it. I was like, I'm not guilty about this. There's nothing wrong with that. And Christopher's great. To, I mean, he likes staying at home, too. How many guys get to stay at home with their kids? Like, not that many have that option. You're listening to Of Dust and Divinity. Back to our conversation in just a moment. Christy, can I ask you a couple of questions? Oh, sure. Kevin, is that all right with you? Please. That's the only way I'd have it. Um, ethical birth mother. Can you explain that to me? Oh, ethical birth mother centered adoptions? Yes. Like... Yes, please. I just, I've not heard that term before. Oh, okay. Um, I think... Well, we, we, our adoption story, I won't obviously rehash the entire thing, but it took, it was a three-year journey for us. Um, three years in adoption and then many more years um, with, un, unable to get pregnant. Um, so when you reach the point where you start thinking, okay, we do, we do want to be parents, um, and then you realize you start learning more about adoption, and I, because I, I guess I wanted to learn, so I I sought out um, birth mothers on Instagram or um, people who spoke about adoption, and you come to quickly realize that the adoptive parents hold most of the power in that. There's something called the adoption triad right? You're a triangle. There's the adoption, adoptive parents, there's the adoptee, and then there's the birth parents. So you, you make a little triangle, right? Okay. So they call it the triad. But the people that hold the most power in that triad is usually the, the adoptive parents. Um, we're the ones with the finances, the finances where, you know, like there's the resources. Um, so anyway, you can, there's a whole lot and I'm, would rather you guys look up the voices of adoptees or, or birth mothers for that. But um, just realizing the amount of power that we had in this process, it's kind of like, oh, um, you know, the birth mothers kind of, to be blunt, birth mothers get screwed over. Um, they are not incubators. They are not your surrogate. They are a woman making a very difficult decision. And to kind of relinquish that power, or maybe you can't, like, maybe you can't relinquish it because maybe that's just the way it is, but to recognize it and to give them space, you know, to, I don't know, I've never put this stuff into words before, so bear with me. Okay. But it's, it's just to realize that. There's a lot of human that adoptions that it's human trafficking 
basically. Mm. You know, like you can even read stories of women flown over from other countries, paid a large sum of money, the children are taken from them, given to, you know, and all of this is supposedly oh, the parent, the adoptive parents didn't know, they thought it was reputable. Well, you know, you have your, you have a responsibility as a parent seeking adoption to, to research this and make sure, is this a valid organization? Is this birth mother being treated? Does she know her rights? Does she, all of those things go into it, right? Does she, does she know what her rights are? Does she have access to an attorney? Um, is she given space to, to really think about it? This is what she wants. Okay. Are you pressuring her? You know, there's those kind of things. Like, is it birth mother centered? Like, this needs right. to be her choice for her baby. Okay. So just you're trying to avoid factory farming in, in some way here. Uh, this isn't this isn't a pipeline. These are relationships. Yeah, because yeah. that stuff really happens in 2020. Right. There are... There are unethical agencies and lawyers and birth parents who just want to become parents at the cost of another human being and i don't right. think that that's well i obviously don't think that's right so christy in your process did you ever feel like you had to resist institutional momentum to maintain an ethical posture or did oh, you guys happen um... to find an organization that was leading the way we found an attorney in Santa Barbara who's very respected and he happened to be a Christian. Um, and so he, and I say that because I think he, he really thinks he has a responsibility, not just to people, but also to God. So he, he wasn't, he's not you know, one of those cheesy, like I say, I'm a Christian and then just to get christian couples in like i think he really f was called to this he could have been making a lot more money in what he how he was trained as a lawyer but he he went into this field because he was passionate about it and um anyway so we found this guy and um through my aunt and uncle actually um who used him to adopt my cousins and um one thing led to another and we were led to an agency that happens to be an above board agency um but yeah, there was a couple of times we were contacted by a lawyer and it just red, this other lawyer, I don't know, red flags were going up everywhere and it, it was very shady and it just, <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously we, we politely declined, um, but it's hard when you, when you want to be a parent and you're, you're saying no to something that could potentially fulfill that you know that's not easy um it's the right thing to do i don't know am i going on a tangent i feel like i'm not connected at all to what you guys were talking about earlier no this is okay. really important yeah i don't know sorry i can go i any what else do you do you have another question i'm i could just i don't want to go on a tangent <laughs> no i was just interested in what that oh. meant when that that was um I haven't lived your experience, but I can certainly appreciate it. My wife and I adopted two kids who were both uh, a bit older, mm -hmm. um, which is a little bit of a different experience maybe than you've been through, but um, we are uh, loosely aware of some of the struggles. And so, Christy, in your process, your view of your role 
an adoption. Was that widely shared? Were you a lone minority? Were you a rejected minority in, in that opinion within the adoptee family networks that you're connected to? You know, I don't know a lot of people, honestly, who have done infant adoption. Um, I just know from the a couple of communities that I, I found on, on Instagram, a couple of um, birth mother voices. There's a few adoptees, but mainly birth mothers. Um, I think there's a lot of people who are just ignorant. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, they just, they just don't know what they should be doing. They just know that they want to be parents and, and, and I don't think they're purposely trying to screw over a birth mom, right? But there's certain promises made or I'm not sure how it happens, but somehow they get maybe in with a, a bad agency or an agency that's not above board or a lawyer that's not above board and and they just don't I don't think they know enough to know this is not how it should go so I think there's a, lo a lot of that out there but I, I don't think that everyone's doing it that way of course I just you know and, and it probably is like a lot of other things that we're learning about right now, of course, in our country with uh, the murder of George Floyd mm -hmm. and the resurgence of calls for reform. And there's a lot of people, myself included, waking up to just how much I'm unaware of. And I can imagine that parents who approach adoption don't always approach it by saying at the start, I'm going to enter this pipeline because I want a stranger to have an ethical experience. They tend to enter the pipeline <laughs> by saying, I want something for my own life, right? There's something right. that I want to get out of this. And unless you're directly confronted with what that might implicate in other people's lives, we're not often called to question that narrative. And, and so I could see how that's a really important voice to hold in the adoption space uh, to help bring context to that experience. I think that's fairly accurate. I want to hang on to the adoption thing a little bit longer and invite Rob's voice into the conversation. So you have obviously had an experience with adoption, and I understand that it's not something that's easy to talk about or maybe not something you want to talk about at all. So feel free to just take a hard pass. Um, but to whatever degree you want to, thinking about all the different things we've talked about so far tonight, um, is there a part of your story you want to bring into this? Sure. My, uh, my wife and I got into the uh, world of adoption several years ago. Uh, it was um, very difficult for us uh, throughout the, throughout the process. There's, Certainly, you know what's coming, um, just the difficulties and the stresses that you're going to experience. But actually living through it is, is something altogether different. So, um, yeah, it's been a pretty, it's definitely been rewarding, but it's been a pretty rough lived experience. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I have a lot of time for anybody that thinks they might be able to uh, to do that, even though they know it's coming themselves. But um, yeah, certainly, certainly a difficult experience, but uh, that's the call. And uh, you know, we're not all the way through it yet. Um, our kids are both still kids, and we've got a lot of work to do still, and a lot of not only help them learn how to grow up, but you know, you 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 revisit what it means to grow up yourself when you adopt a kid. So, uh, yeah, that's our current situation. And they were they were older; they weren't infants. That's correct. Were. That's mm-hmm. correct. Man, there's so many avenues I want to go down there. Um, it, it it's something that has come to my mind, right? So I, I spent a lot of time sitting on a tractor, um, which lends itself to a semi-monastic lifestyle. Um, and because the tractor is loud, I have to wear noise canceling headphones. And because I have to wear noise canceling headphones, I invested in some high quality, uh, Bluetooth headphones so I can listen to books and podcasts while I'm on the tractor. And then I'll go through whole days where I don't listen to anything and I just ponder. And in one of those days, I found myself thinking about that line, exactly what you just said, Rob, that knowing it was difficult didn't make doing it any easier. And gosh darn it, I sure thought it would. There was something about, I don't know where I received this childhood message, but I thought once you know that the school assignment is going to be hard, it's going to make it easier just knowing it's hard. Once you... but. I mean, it's obviously not true, right? Knowing a marathon is hard to run doesn't make running a marathon any easier. It might give you some insight in how to train for it, but you still actually have to do the hard work of running the marathon. And, you know, I think about marriage in my own life or what we're talking about, raising kids, or as I was thinking about on the farm, farming, um, so much volatility and unknown in that mix or any of those environments that I just mentioned. And you can know all day long that there's going to be periods of high volatility, of not knowing what's around the next corner, of not knowing how you're going to leap from the rock you're standing on now to the next rock before the water rises again. Um, and that doesn't make it any less terrifying when you're standing on the rock watching the waters rise. And I don't always know how to respond to that because I personally, I despise that feeling of panic that rises and I criticize myself for feeling that panic because I say, well, dummy, you knew it was going to be hard. So why are you panicking? And right. And so I deny my own humanity in it, but man, I I just feel so ill-equipped for those moments. More fantastic conversation just ahead here on Of Dust and Divinity. You were talking, Christy, at the beginning when we were first talking about what is a good conversation. You were talking about how you often like you're the person in the group who brings up a taboo when you say something that makes other people uncomfortable. And what came into my mind uh, was actually, wow, that is such a gift to the world because I didn't get a sense from you that you do it with malice and I don't think oh, no. that you do. I, 
I think I think you're a truth hunter. I think you're someone who tries to sniff out the truth and you unbury it maybe with TNT instead of a, a scalpel. But like <laughs> I, I feel like as you were talking, you were like a good conversation can't be good until there is truth presiding in it. That's an accurate summary. And it's true. Sometimes though, Cabin, sometimes it is fun to watch conservative Christians squirm. Oh, it is so much fun. So sometimes there is an element of entertainment, but most of the time it's it's because I'm really just trying to get to the truth. And and this is my experience. I've experienced a severe shortfall of truth hunters. There's not a shortfall of righteous warriors, of people who are willing to go and die for their opinion. Um, but those are very different than people who actually hunt out the truth because the truth doesn't exist within us. It exists without us and outside of us. And so encountering it is always a little bit of a self-death because we become something a little bit different than when we were before we encountered it. So real truth hunters are hard to find. Well, it's certainly costly. Please explain. Well, I can only, based on my own experience, that's all I can gauge this off of. At any given time, any of us is only speaking a third of what we're actually thinking. Whether it's about people we're in conversation with or ideas or what we really think. In most contexts, most of us aren't saying what we're actually thinking most of the time. And I'm sure there's some wisdom in that. If I were to say everything I were thinking all the time, I would probably be in jail. Yeah, it's just recently occurred to me that the part of us that we put forward is not necessarily the true part of who we are. Yeah, and in fact, most wisdom teachers would absolutely agree with you. And and I personally agree with you because I have come to see that I am not I. And there's this incredible poem by a South American soul hunter um, who writes about the soul the shadow. Hmm. And he talks about how I am not I, I am he that walks beside me. Oh boy. And there's a line in the poem that says, um, who is silent when I talk. And it's this idea that the real us leaves the room as soon as we open our mouths. And then the one of us whose mouth is moving is now just the ego. And it actually requires the silence for the soul to come back in the room for us to learn something from it. Can I, uh, can I read you guys something? Of course. I was thinking about this. It might've been before we started recording, but it just reminded me uh, of the relevance to this conversation we're having when Caben talked about this poet. This is a a poem by a, a, a guy named Charles Bukowski. I think it's pronounced Bukowski. I'm not sure exactly how his last name is pronounced, but that's it's Bukowski. Bukowski, thank you. Um, but he's at least in the last 40, 50 years. I, I I think he's just a genius. And it's I wonder. It's just about his experience as a as a popular writer and poet. It says there's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough. I say stay in there. I'm not going to let anybody see. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I pour whiskey. I take a cigarette so the whores and the bartenders and the grocery clerks never know that he's in there. 
There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough. I say, stay down. Do you want to mess me up? Do you want to screw up all my works? There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too clever. I only let him out at night sometimes, when everybody sleeps. I say, I know that you're there. Don't be so sad. That's what I said. Then I put him back, but he's always singing. I don't let him die and we sleep together. Like that with our secret pact. It's nice enough to make a man weep, but I don't weep, do you? It's nice enough to make a little man weep, but I don't weep, do you? There's a bluebird messing with my heart. What should I do with this little bird? There's a bluebird messing with my heart. What could I do with this little bird? I'm turning into a bird. I'm turning into a bird. So I will fly with this melancholy. That's interesting because as I read that to you guys, there was a last stanza there that I'd never seen before, which I think is different than the popular version. But, you know, here's a guy who had who had achieved the peak of his profession, was popular and was wealthy. And even he was saying that there was something inside himself that he was afraid to let out. A public figure who was famous because he spoke his heart. Mm. Mm. And I just want to hold space and bear witness to what that means for your story and my story. And I hope that people who listen to this podcast might begin a long conversation with their bluebird. Mm. And I think if there were some day in the distant future where I got an email from someone who said, I've now befriended my bluebird and named it, and we go on walks together in the early morning hours that might just be enough for me to feel like I've done my part. Maybe so for all of us. I think what was named in that poem is exactly the path that I've been on in my own life these last two years. Right. Yeah, and and clinically, Jung uh, would say that, of course, the soul only comes out at night because Mm. that's the only time where we're in complete darkness and so silenced that our ego can't speak, and then our self comes. And I have not lit a cigarette, um, but I have poured my whiskey. And there is so much awareness, and then also at the same time so much fear of what it would mean to really befriend that little bluebird, as the poem says. Um, And of course, that bluebird has all kinds of names and all kinds of traditions and context, but let's just hang with that name, calling it the little bluebird. The floofy Um, bluebird. The floofy, but you know, the thing is that little bluebird is the only thing that's actually real about any of us because that little bluebird is the only thing within us that lives in both worlds. And the thing about the soul is the soul is not so interested in living. It's interested in being alive. And the soul doesn't understand time. If you tell the soul to wait a minute, it looks confused. That's why when we meet with certain old friends, it's almost like we never left because the soul hasn't. And we pick up right where we were. It's also why we keep it so well hidden from the rest of the world who would seek to laugh at it and throw stones at it and put it in a cage and monetize it. 
Um, and that's part of the reason why I landed on the name of Dust and Divinity for this podcast, because there is a sense in which we're all dust. We are all meaning, uh, the, the, the meaning that we contribute to the world on the scale of the universe is very small and very dust-like. Mm. The span of time we spend on this earth is very short, like a puff of dust upon the ground. And yet dust itself is eternal. It's the one thing on this earth that's been around um, since before pretty much all other things, except for maybe water and air. It's elemental, and it's what we are. And dust is also, of course, connected to divinity very closely in many traditions, and certainly the Christian creation mythology story and poetic form of life, dust and divinity are closely connected. And in fact, they commune together. And there's something about the eternal nature of dust, which lends itself to the divine and gives us a pathway into something more than just being temporary motes, but actually connects us to this time geologic. And of course, because of technology, we're also connected at the speed of light across great, great distances that the dust doesn't connect us, but technology does. And so, yeah, there is this element of soulful yearning that led even into the name. So I appreciate that poem. And that's our show. Thank you for joining in this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. There is more conversation with Robin Christie coming up on the next episode. We take a totally different turn and we start talking about spirituality and particularly the Christian church and its response to society these days. And then episode two, which will feature new guests, will be coming out the following week. Here's a sneak peek of the second part of our conversation with Rob and Christy. And even more so now that I work for an FQHC, a federally qualified health center, where, you know, we don't really care who you are or if you have insurance or not. We're going to give you medical care and you deserve quality medical care because, you know, you're a human. Health care is a right, not a privilege. You know, I'm sure there's lots of people in the church that have an opinion about a lot of our patients, where they come from, how they came here. And at the end of the day is when you see parents bringing their kids in, they just want their kids to be taken care of. They just want their grandmas to have the right medication and make them feel better. Like people are people. Sometimes people in the church have these opinions, but they don't actually have any basis for them. I'm like, what are you go? How are you forming this opinion? A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project and a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of Clementine Brands for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you for you would not be able to live them. And the point is, to live everything. Live the questions now.